I'd like to join others in welcoming you here today. Good morning. It's great to be with you. What a delight to be uh, here with God's people, to have this opportunity to uh, worship Him. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here. Thanks to um, Brother Doug and uh, the elders here for giving me this opportunity to be with you on this very special day, friends and family. I love your theme, uh, Finding uh, Direction. And uh, like the little display you did, I like everything about this except one thing. And that's the guy's picture on the back. You just got to have something to work with, though, don't you? (laughs) And I'm glad I've got Ms. Light with me. She always uh, makes everything look a little bit better uh, around me. So thank you so much. Now, I also wanted to say... Uh, that uh, before we begin our lesson, that it was so great to see Jim Murphy. Where's Jim? Jim, he might have left. I don't know if he did or not. I don't see him. I'm still blind. Ah, there he is. Okay, Jim, it's great to see you. We worked together at Freed Hardeman for a while. When I first saw him, I thought it was John the Baptist. But uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he looks great. And uh, we had some good times together, didn't we, Jim? I remember those... Uh, cafeteria <clears throat> meetings that we had and enjoyed getting to eat together. And and then uh, John Kackelman um, I saw, and uh, who else did I see? Some others that I mentioned uh, earlier. <clears throat> and what a delight it is to go to different places and to run into uh, former students and colleagues, and it's always just a really good experience. All right, now, <clears throat> you know I want to see your Bibles. Let's get them up high. I want to see all these Bibles in a crowd like this. Wow. Isn't that great? All right, I'll take iPhones. Um, we got um, iPads, laptops. Okay, good deal. <clears throat> I'll take all forms of uh, communication of the Word. I like to hear the pages rustle, though. Do you like to hear that sound? I just like to hear, uh, hear that. I still like to hold a book. I've read a lot of papers uh, um, just from my computer and so forth. But I like a I like to mark you know mark on them, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I like paper. I like to hear those pages rustle. <clears throat> all right, with your theme finding direction, uh, this hour we're talking about finding direction from Jesus' example. It's a profound thought to me that in Romans uh, chapter eight and verse twenty nine, that God predestined from all eternity that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. And then in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, it says there that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And so what we have is the Father sent the Son. The words that Jesus spoke are the words the Father would have said. The deeds that He did were the deeds that the Father would have done. He is our example, and it is in His steps that we should strive to walk. And so we might ask ourselves the question today, are we more like Jesus today than we were a year ago? I mean, after all, we're supposed to be conformed to His image, correct? And we're supposed to be transforming. The word transform there from the Greek word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. You know, that process that a caterpillar undergoes to become a butterfly, that's a radical transformation, isn't it? And so, 
we too go through a transformation to be like Jesus. And upon becoming a Christian, we uh, rise out of the watery grave of baptism to walk in newness of life, and then the rest of our spiritual journey is becoming like Jesus. That's just an incredible thought to me. No wonder God wants us to come home uh, after our backs are you know, bent with the burden of many years and so forth. No wonder He wants us to come home. He wants to receive us. We've become like His Son. One of the most incredible thoughts to me is how Jesus interacted with other people. I've often um, said to myself that if I could ever become like Jesus and how He interacted with other people, then I could do a better job in winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be turning your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we will begin our study today. And I have four points that I want to discuss with you from Luke chapter uh, 7. And uh, basically, we'll be talking about the example of Jesus in interacting with other people. You may ask, well, what is the exact title of your lesson? Well, it may be a lesson on grace, it may be a lesson on evangelism, it may be a lesson on interpersonal relationships. I'll let you decide. But we have four points that we're going to look at. And the first point has to do with Luke chapter 7, namely that Jesus treated people like friends, like people ought to be treated. In Luke 7, about 34, the Bible says that the Son of Man was come eating and drinking... And then the people said, behold, what? A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Now we know the Lord was not a gluttonous person. We know that He was not a wine-bibber. But He associated with these people in hopes of helping them transform. In hopes of getting the good news in their life and changing them. Now following this accusation in verse 34, there is a story Uh, that is told, and I'm going to summarize it as quickly as I can, but it really sets the stage for our lesson today. The story is about a Pharisee by the name of Simon who invites Jesus to dinner. Now, we need to understand that uh, Simon is a Pharisee. The Pharisees, of course, were those who uh, were the strictest sect among the Jews. Unfortunately, they had a very legalistic interpretation of the law. Uh, Simon and the Pharisees were the kind of guys who were very concerned about, uh, metaphorically speaking, their uh, book of do's and don'ts. And they would check it periodically to make sure that they had done the things that they were supposed to do and that they had avoided the things that they were supposed to avoid. They were on the inside as far as religion is concerned. On the other hand, there's another character here who is not identified by name, who's on the outside of religion, And the Bible says that she is a woman, a sinner. Now, Doug, I think what we've done traditionally is we've painted this woman as a woman of ill repute. And that may well be the case, but the Bible does not say that. It just says she's a woman who is a sinner. I would like to look at her like this way. She's on the outside as far as religion is concerned. Simon's on the inside as far as religion is concerned. Here's a woman who recognizes her sin, recognizes that she is in great need, whereas Simon, on the other hand, does not recognize that he has any sin. 
as a matter of fact, would be insulted if you were to suggest that he did have sin. At any rate, Jesus is invited to dinner by Simon. Now, Ms. Life and I have got a dining room table. It seats eight people. And on more than one occasion, we've had eight people gather around that table. You all have had similar experiences, but not once when we've had formal occasions has someone just appeared and taken a seat at the table to make number nine. But at this dinner, it's really interesting to me that uh, you've got Simon and Jesus, and all of a sudden this woman appears. The houses were rather open, and so she just sort of wanders in, perhaps through an open door, and, and so she's, all, she's at the place. She's at Simon's place. And she's at the feet of Jesus, and she begins to weep. And as she weeps, the tears from her eyes fall on the Lord's feet. And uh, she begins to wash His feet with her tears. Now just try to get that in your mind. Have you got a good imagination? Can you see that? I mean, she is truly weeping to the extent that she is able to wash His feet with her tears. And she wipes them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee saw this, he's uh, perhaps, you know, standing uh, aside. I would think he would be aside because after all, she's a sinner, right? And he's not going to be around anything like that. So he's standing apart, you know, from the situation, looking at it. And the Bible says he speaks to himself. It says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. And the implication is, therefore, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. Jesus, the Bible says, answered him, verse 40. What did he answer? Answered his thoughts, didn't he? How'd you like to be around somebody like that? Uh, My good friend Melvin Ote is out here. Melvin, how would you like to be around somebody like that? So you're standing around someone, and then all of a sudden, about 15 minutes after you've been with this person, the person stops and says, "Uh, Melvin, I'd like to comment on some of those thoughts you've been having. (laughs) I don't want to be around people like that. You know, sometimes my thoughts are not what they ought to be. I'm thinking like, I really wish this person would let me go. (laughs) You know, I really wish they wouldn't ask me this question again. They've already asked me 10 times, you know, in the last hour or whatever. I mean, you know, it's just not very nice, is it? And so uh, sometimes I'm just, I'm a very transparent person. I'm just telling you sometimes I don't think like I ought to think. And so I wouldn't want to be around somebody like that. But Jesus answers his thoughts. And he says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And I think rather sarcastically, Simon says, well, okay, say it. Verse 40. And then the Lord says, there was a creditor, he had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. They had nothing with which to repay, and he freely forgave them both. Which one will love him more? And Simon says, well, of course, the one who was forgiven the most. That's right. And then Jesus says, do you see this woman? He says, I came into your house and you did not extend one social courtesy to me, but this woman has extended all of the social courtesies of the day toward me. And I am saying to you that her sins, verse 47, are many and they are forgiven because she loved a lot. You see, Simon's the kind of person who wouldn't have loved had you forgiven him because in his mind he didn't have anything to be forgiven of. Are you with me? 
See, if you were to say, Simon, your sins are forgiven, he would say, I beg your pardon. I don't think I have any sin. I checked my book of do's and don'ts this morning and I'm doing great. Don't be talking about any mistakes in my life. You see, he wouldn't have loved much because he didn't think he had anything to be forgiven of. But this woman had a lot to be forgiven of. And she loved much because she had a lot to be forgiven of. I think this illustrates how people ought to be treated. Now, keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. But if you will, we'll be in Luke for the most part. But uh, turn to Luke 19, if you would. Luke chapter 19. You know this story. This is the story of Zacchaeus. We've been singing about him ever since Noah. He is what? A wee little man. Isn't that right? He's a wee little man. The Bible says he has short stature, but that just doesn't fit the song very well, does it? Or ever how we you know, talk about him. Well... Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, you need to understand the background here. Rome occupied uh, Palestine at this time. The people hated the Romans. They longed for the day when the Romans were gone. They thought that the coming of the Messiah would get rid of the Romans. That's one of the main things that they were looking forward to. You know, in John chapter 6, they want to make Jesus as a king. The background is, you know, we're these militant guys. We need a leader, and we want you to get rid of them for us. They hated the Romans, and they hated people who worked for the Romans. Well, Zacchaeus worked for the Romans. He's collecting taxes. So they, they didn't like him for that reason. Number two, they didn't like him because he was a tax collector. I've not met anybody who says, oh, great, it's tax season. I can't wait to pay my taxes. We worry about people that think like that. We don't want to pay the taxes, and especially if we're not being taxed properly, and that's what these collectors were doing. You see, they raised the levy, and they overtaxed people, and then they put the surplus in their own pockets. And so they deprived people of the money that they needed to provide for their families. So Zacchaeus is in this category, all right? Now... Notice that the Bible says he's a short man, but he's a smart man. He knows that he's not going to be able to see Jesus because of the crowd, because of his stature, but he's smart and he spots a tree up the road and it's a sycamore tree and he says, I can get in that tree and I can see Jesus from there. Now, have you got a good imagination? Can you, can, can you let your imagination you know, go with me here? Do you see that dusty road? No asphalt, no curbs. You see that dusty road? I can see it. I was raised on a gravel road in Mississippi. I can can, can see all of this, okay? There's a dusty road there. Do you see this tree up, up ahead? Do you see this man trying to get up the tree? I've often wondered, how did he get up that tree? In Mississippi, uh, when I was working in pulpwood as a young man, sycamore was a tree I despised. It was so slick. You couldn't do much with it. And I've often wondered, how did he get up there? But at any rate, that's another story. So he gets up the tree some way or the other. Now, you don't need to think that he's up 100 feet in the air or even 50. He's just above the heads of the people. Do you see him getting positioned? You know, maybe he's holding on to a limb. Maybe that limb breaks. Oh, wow, I like to fail. You know, I've got to get another limb here. Hold on here. Do you see that? So he's finally getting settled and waiting for Jesus to come down the road. And then there's some, other, some others around him. 
Now what I'd like for you to do in your mind's eye is I would like you to imagine not Jesus coming down the road, but Simon coming down the road. Can you do that with me? I want to make a point here. It's Simon coming down the road. And oh, everybody just likes, loves to hang around Simon. I mean, every now and then he'll stop and utter a maxim or a proverb, you know, some kind of saying that he's just recently come up with. And everybody wants to hear what he has to say because it's just so uh, in-depth and it uh, is characterized by so much wisdom. And out of his eye, out of the corner of his eye, he sees Zacchaeus up the tree. And he says, there's that tax collector. I hate tax collectors. And he's saying this to himself, of course. We already know he's really good at talking to himself, right? We learned that in Luke 7 and 39. So he gets right up under the tree and he stops. And he says to the people, ignoring Zacchaeus just above him, and he says, I feel like uh, preaching just a short sermon at this time. Oh, uh, that'd be great, Simon. We want to hear anything that you've got to say. Well, I just want to give a really brief sermon. It's actually not even long enough to be called a sermon. Uh, Let me just say this. I hate tax collectors. Here's a kiss right above him. Let me tell you that they collect taxes for Rome. Let me tell you that they are sorry and no count. Let me tell you that they uh, take money from you that you need to provide food and shelter and clothing for your family. They are cheats, no good They are some of the sorriest people who've ever graced this earth and they're going to die and burn in hell forever. And them's my sentiments. That finishes my sermon. And then he goes on down the road. And how would the story end if it were like that? Zacchaeus would come down from the tree and he would do what? He'd go back to his business of collecting taxes. Am I right? That's right. You, you could do this. That would be helpful. Okay. All right. Thank you. My, my good song leader here. All right. Now. But you see, that's not the way that that story goes. On the contrary, Jesus sees him and Jesus stops and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. Uh, let's get together for lunch. And so he goes to his house with him, and the Bible says that the people are really nervous because he's gone to be with a sinner. You know, they're all nervous about that. And then Zacchaeus says, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've ever taken anything by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. You see, the way Jesus treated this man brought salvation to him. The way Simon would have treated him wouldn't have brought anything but condemnation. You see, Jesus didn't come you know, to kill. He came to save. I hope that you're not like me sometimes as I think about treatment of others, sometimes I want to just go to somebody and I want to take them by their clothes and I want to say to this guy, just shaking him till his teeth rattled, man, why don't you wake up? Can't you see how you're treating your family? Can't you, you know, see how you're living? And having done that, I could button my coat and I could walk on down the road and I could say, boy, I gave him what for? 
but I probably have not helped him much because I didn't bring him closer to Jesus. See, Jesus treated people like friends. Number two, Jesus, and bear with me, don't judge me too quickly on this. Listen to me first. Jesus never told people how bad they were. On the contrary, He told them what they could become. Now, I'm well aware of Matthew 23, so don't go there, where he talked about the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites, and you're going to receive the greater condemnation. But I'm not talking about people like that. I'm aware of what Paul did to Elamus in Acts chapter 13 when he blinded him because he was trying to stop the gospel. But I'm not talking about people like that. I'm talking about people who feel like they have no hope. I'm talking about people who feel like that they just have no hope, they're downtrodden, Nobody cares about them. I cannot find in my Bible where people like that are told by the Lord how bad they are. I find, on the contrary, as I said, that they're told what they can become. If you think about it, even the apostles, Jesus didn't come into town, as it were, and um, run an advertisement in the paper and say, I'd like to meet with everybody who's got a string of degrees. I'd like to meet with all the guys who have been sitting under the feet of the most famous rabbis. I want to put this team together and I want to see you know, who the most educated people are and so forth and so on. He didn't do that. Rather, Matthew 4.19, he said to people, You follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. I will cultivate you. I will make you something great. We, all of us as parents learned a long time ago that different things affect our children, influence them. Have we not known for a long time that our children are influenced by what they think they are, by what others think they are, by what they think others think they are? And for that reason, we don't uh, you know, communicate to our children in, in certain ways. We don't say, well, you're ignorant and you can't learn anything and you have no potential and so forth. We don't treat one another like that. If you would allow me to use myself as an example, let's say that you don't think that I can amount to anything in the kingdom, that you think I'm a kind of a rascal, that you think that I cannot do one thing to enhance the borders of the kingdom, to spread the gospel of Christ. And I hear that message from you day in and day out. Guess what? I'm probably not going to let you down. See, I believe that for the most part, people generally rise to the level of expectations that people have of them. So if you have, I I believe in keeping the bar high. Keep it high. People strive just a little bit more when the bar is high. I believe that in education. I have a high expectation of myself. I have high expectations of others. I don't reach it. Others don't reach it. But the very fact that we have that high expectation enables us, I think, to surpass in a way that we would not have otherwise. And so Jesus, I think it's incredible how He taught people what they could become. Now, I want to leave Luke just for a moment, and let's go to John 8. John chapter 8. In John 8, we have the occasion of the adulterous woman. Uh, I believe that this is a situation where Jesus was set up The Bible actually says in verse 6 that they were testing Him. 
Who were they? The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3. Simon's right here in the midst of this bunch. You know, if not in person, certainly uh, in name of the Pharisees. And notice that what they were trying to do to the Lord over and over is they were trying to ensnare Him in His speech. I mean, after all, everybody was listening to Jesus, correct? There's one passage that says the whole world was going after Him. And so the Pharisees were saying this, you know, essentially, wow, He's really messing up things, He's messing up the status quo, and we got to do something about this man. You know, in John chapter 5, they sought to kill Him, and they eventually did. And so they constantly were scheming, trying to come up with some kind of plan by which they could kill Jesus, catch Him in a trap. So, they, they get this woman caught in adultery. I believe in this instance the man was in on the plan because he's not mentioned. But I think he's one of the guys. We'll get a woman in adultery. And so the Bible says that they find her in the very act, verse 4. See, this guy's in on it. And they bring her and they put her in the very midst of Jesus. And then here's the plan. We got him now. Under Roman law, they uh, could not exercise the power of capital punishment. You know, in John chapter uh, 18 and 19, it talks about the fact that they had a law, and their law required stoning. But they couldn't do that under the Romans. That's the reason they ended up having to go through the Romans to seek the death of Christ. And so if he says to, to kill her, then violates the Roman law. On the other hand, if he says don't kill her, then he's violating Moses' law. Because under Moses' law, you could be put to death for adultery or murder or even cursing one's parents. So we got him now. Let's see what he says. Now Moses says to kill her, what do you say? And isn't it interesting that Jesus, upon hearing that, goes over and stoops down. Look up here. Let me have your eyeballs stoops down, and he writes on the ground. As though he did not hear them. See that? Now what is interesting to me about this, Doug, is everybody on the planet wants to know what? What Jesus write on the ground? What did he write on the ground? We just can't live until we find out what he wrote on the ground. It's been reported to me, I don't know... um, exactly how this went, but uh, Jim, it was reported to me one time that Brother Hardeman at Freed Hardeman was teaching a class about this, and and, uh, this issue came up, and a student raised his hand and said, "Um, I once knew what he wrote on the ground, but I forgot. (laughs) To which Brother Hardeman replied by saying, what a sad day that was, that in nearly, at that time, 2,000 years of history, of church history, that one person on the planet knew what Jesus wrote on the ground and now he's forgotten it. He didn't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. I don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground and you don't either and that's not even the point. It's not what he wrote, it's why he wrote. Notice what the Bible says, as though he did not hear. And then what, verse 7? They continued asking him. And so, they, Jesus is writing on the ground as though he did not hear. And so then they, they, they keep on saying, the law says to kill her, what do you say? The law says to kill her, what do you say? And they're thinking, well, he can't hear us. Maybe they got louder. The law says to kill her, what do you say? 
And having now dug for themselves a very deep hole, having John thoroughly indicted themselves, now Jesus rises up and says, that's right. He who has the first, uh, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Simple, isn't it? And then what does he do? He goes back and writes on the ground. Now, Randy, the reason I think he did that, it's not what he wrote, but why. Let's say, God forbid, that you and I were to to get in some kind of argument. And my fuse is short. Unfortunately, you know, families have certain characteristics, and that's one of ours. It's a little bit longer than it used to be, but not a lot. I'm hoping by the time I die that it'll be a little bit longer, but at any rate... So I'm mad, you're mad, I'm getting loud, you're getting loud, we're in one another's face and all of that sort of thing. If one of us had the good sense to back off, break eye contact, then the argument might be abated. And so I think that's what happened. You see, Jesus is eyeball to eyeball with these people, and He says, He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. But instead of maintaining eye contact, He broke eye contact, and He went over here, And he's writing on the ground, and that gave them time to process that information. And so they started thinking like this, hmm, he who has no sin. You know, I've been guilty of this myself, one of them might have said. Another one might have said, well, I've actually stolen. Another one might have said, I've cheated someone. Another one might have said, well, I've lied. And so they themselves were guilty of sin. And they left from the eldest to the youngest. And then Jesus, of course, did not approve of her sin because He said, go your way and what? Sin no more. But the point that I want to make here is this. You see, Jesus did not come to, to, uh, to kill this woman. He came to save the woman. He didn't come to kill. He came to save. And he said, you can be something greater than this. You don't have to be like this. You can become something great. Jesus told people what they could become. Number three, Jesus saw the good in people. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10... We have a civil man, a lawyer. Brother John told me he's he's a practicing attorney. So here's a civil man. But we need to remember this man is not only a civil man, but he's a religious man. And uh, I think it's really interesting about this man. He, he, would be, <clears throat> he would be the Simon type. He would be right in there with those guys in John 8. Notice the word tested in verse 25. See, again, here's a man wanting to trick him up. This lawyer kind of reminds me of some of those guys that uh, I've met in different places before where they have their pet question. Have you ever met anybody like that? They've got this question. It's their pet. They keep it with them all the time. They pull it out of their pocket occasionally and they polish it. They love their question. They've sprung it on Brother Doug, and then they leave saying, well, Doug wasn't able to answer it. 
And they'll spring it on men like Randy and Melvin and Jim and John and Rob and others. They can't answer the question. And then the visiting evangelist comes into town and they bring out their question. And they spring it on him. And they leave boasting, saying, Why, I've asked everybody this question and nobody can answer my question. That's the kind of guy we're talking about here. And so he has this question. And what is the question? What must I do to be saved, basically? And I love the way Jesus responds to this, John. He says, well, um, you're a lawyer. What's a lawyer supposed to know? Hello, the law. (laughs) What's the law say? (laughs) And what does he say? Well, the law says, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the big one. And then the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. If you do this, you'll live. But this lawyer was not going to do anything but argue. Now, it's just my opinion. I can only give you my opinion. But my opinion here is that this lawyer is always trying to trick up somebody. And uh, he's met his match today. And perhaps the crowd might have been snickering a little bit. And they might have said, wow, he's met his match today. And so he attempts to justify himself. And so what does he do? <clears throat> he takes his first argument, and uh, maybe it's in a file folder of some sort, and he goes back and he puts, it, puts that one in his briefcase, and he takes out argument number two. And argument number two is, well, I bet you can't tell me who my neighbor is. Try that on for size. No wonder we call Jesus the master teacher. Let me tell you a story. No, don't tell me a story, my students say. Just tell us what's going to be on the test No, I'm going to tell you a story because I believe in critical thinking and I want you to draw conclusions based on the story. And when you do that, it'll be your belief, your value, you see? So he says, let me tell you this story. There was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and they just beat the tar out of him. They stripped him of his clothes. They wounded him. And they left him half dead. Uh, Have you got that in your mind? Do you see that dusty road? Do you see, you know, these places where robbers can hide out on the side of the road? Do you see this man coming around the curve? He's minding his own business. And all of a sudden these guys jump out from the side of the road and they just beat him up. And practically beat him to death. So here he is on the side of the road. He hasn't got a stitch of clothes on. He's bruised and bloody and perhaps, you know, groaning on the side of the road. And fortunately, a religious man comes by, a priest. Aren't we glad of that? This is this man's lucky day, as it were. And he sees him and he says, wow. This has not really been a good day for you. You know, I was telling my congregation the other day, you get out in this neighborhood and this is the kind of thing that will happen to you. I bet you've learned your lesson now. I have got some sacrifices I've got to prepare. I've got to go to church. And then a Levite comes by and says the same thing. The Bible says they pass by on the other side. And then the Lord says a Samaritan comes by. A hated man. A mixed race 
despised in the community. And he sees the man bruised and bloody. And he stops. And he performs, young people, CPR right on the spot. It's ancient CPR. It's pouring on oil, bandaged his wounds, and, and wine. And he, so, so that's ancient CPR. What do you think? That's what it looks like to me. And then it says he put him in his car. Actually put him on his animal. That would be his ancient car. You get it? And then he took him to the motel. Might have been Motel 6. They might have left the light on. What do you think? And then the Bible says he took care of him. I believe he stayed up with him all night. He took care of him. What do you think? He's nearly half dead. So he's taking care of this man. And then the Bible says on the next day, this is a businessman. He's got business to take care of. So he goes up to the desk clerk and the clerk might have said, How's that man doing? Well, he's in pretty bad shape, but he's going to be okay. He made it through the night. He'll be okay. And then the man takes out of his pocket some money, and he says, here's some money I want to leave with you. I'm going to lay it right here. I've got some business I've got to take care of. You take care of that man. And when I come back by, if you have to spend more than what this money will allow you to do, you spend it. And you put it on my bill, and I'll settle with you when I come back. And then Jesus says, now, you tell me who was neighbor. Who was neighbor? And he says, well, the one who showed mercy. I've often asked myself, Doug, uh, exactly what does this teach? I've really thought about this hard, and I've said, what does it teach? And, I, and it seems to me that there are about three things that it, that it teaches. Maybe more, but I can only think of these three. Number one, I think one thing that it teaches is how sometimes we say that we should be benefactors to others and then we're not. Isn't that right? So I think it condemns our own hypocrisy. Number two, I think it says this. And when I, when I tell you this, it saddens me to say this. But I come before you today, having been treated better by some atheistic professors under whose feet I have sat in classes than I have been treated by my own brethren. And I'm telling you, that ought not to be the case. I think it illustrates that sometimes unbelievers do a better job of treating people like they ought to be treated than people who ought to really know how to treat people. But the biggest thing that it teaches is this. There's good in people. There's good in people. See, nobody saw any good in this Samaritan's life. But Jesus saw the good in people. Number four, and finally, turn to Luke 15. In Luke chapter 15, it's rather long. I'll abbreviate as quickly as I can. But brethren, listen to me. Bear with Y'all are such a good audience. See, you make a guy go over time. It's your fault, okay? Um, brethren, listen to me. 
Jesus came into this world to reveal the Father. Did you know that? He came to reveal the Father. What is it that an Orthodox Jew could not know without Jesus coming into the world? I think that an Orthodox Jew could not know, really, understand that God wants the wayward. See, God wants sinners. He doesn't want them to continue in sin, but He wants those people who can become like His Son, Jesus. Orthodox Jew couldn't figure that out. Jesus came to reveal the Father. So there's this account of the prodigal son that we love and know so well. Here's a a boy that goes to his father and treats him like a dead man. Well, why do you say that, Brother David? Well, I say it because he goes to his dad and he says, I want what's coming to me and I want it right now. Now, the Bible does not say that the father, you know, pleaded with him to not, you know, desire that and so forth. The Bible just says he divided his inheritance. And he left and he took his money. And what did he do? He wasted it on wine, women, and song. In prodigal living. And guess what happened when the money ran out? He didn't have any friends anymore. And he couldn't find a job. Oh, alas, he finds a job feeding the swine. What a humiliating job, especially for a Jew. In the pig pen, with the pigs. So hungry that he was willing to eat what the pigs were eating. And one day, he says to himself, this is crazy. He repents. He changes his mind. He says, in my father's house, the slaves have it better than I do. I am going to go back home and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Please take me back and let me just be a slave. That's what I'm going to do. And he gets up and he heads home. He's got a spring in his step because he's made up his mind to do the right thing. It's a long, arduous journey, but he gets closer to home, comes over the rise, and sees the house. I want to change the story just a little bit to make a point. You, of course, know the Father represents God, don't you? You know the prodigal is me and you. You know we are the ones who've strayed, and God, the Father, wants us to come back home, and He'll receive us. But I want to end our lesson like we started with our good friend Simon. Instead of the father on the porch, I'd like for us to put Simon on the porch. How do you think that would look? And let's add in this story, let's add a mother. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But in in my story, I want to add a mother. And so here's, here's Simon on the porch, and, and he's just been really working hard, making up some of his maxims and proverbs. And, and he's sitting there and sees something moving in the distance. And he stands up, perhaps gets on his tiptoes, 
Maybe he shades his eyes. And he says to himself, I believe that's that boy. And then <clears throat> he says, Mama, come out here. That boy of yours is coming home. You see, it's your boy. Maybe she's like my mother and grandmother, had flour on her hands. I believe that is our boy. Yeah, it's your boy, all right. I bet he hadn't got a dime in his pocket. What do you think? I bet you he spent every penny he's got. And it's no telling what he's done. I bet he's been involved in every sin that you can think of. And now, look at him. Coming back home. I guess he thinks he's going to go down the hall and get in his bedroom, you know, and just take up residence again. Well, he's got another thing coming, I'll tell you right now. Boy gets a little closer. He's picking up his speed a little bit. And he notices there's a new picket fence around the house. Got a little gate. Painted white. And he's about to touch the gate and he hears this loud voice. Boy, get your hand off the gate. Your mama just painted that gate. Of course, she would have had some help if her son had been here. I would have helped her, but I was in town with the other men. We were discussing some things about the law, so I couldn't help her. Boy, let me tell you something. Your mama has not been able to lift up her head in town when she goes to buy groceries because of the shame and the disgrace that you've brought on this family. Don't you think for one minute you're just going to waltz back in here and take up residence in your bedroom. You just stay out there under that bush. You stay out there all night. We'll talk about it. We might let you stay in the woodshed, but it's not a promise. Aren't you glad that's not the way that story goes? Isn't that, that's awful. On the contrary, the father sees him, the Bible says, afar off. And he doesn't stand there with his arms crossed waiting for the boy to come. The Bible says he runs and meets him and greets him and hugs him and kisses him. And he says, son, you were lost, but you're saved. You're not dead. I'm so glad you're alive and back home. And he puts a robe on him. You know what that robe is? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And he puts a ring on his finger. Might have been a signet ring. Ability to write a check is basically what it was about. Essentially saying, son, I know you probably don't have any money. You know, here's your credit card. And then he says, you know the fatted calf? Yes, sir. It's time to kill it. And we're going to invite all our friends and all of our neighbors far and wide to come. And we're going to have the biggest party that we've ever had celebrating your return. Stakes for everybody. You see, Jesus treated people with God's attitude. Now here's what I want you to know today. God loves me. God loves you. God wants us as His children. He wants us just like we are with all of our warts. He wants us. 
He's not saying to us, you get all cleaned up and everything and then I'll take you. He wants us just like we are. And then, having obeyed the gospel by confessing our faith and repenting and being baptized, He wants us to walk in newness of life and spend the rest of our days becoming like His Son. That's what He wants. And some of you, most of you, are doing that. Some of you may not be doing that. Some of you may have started on the journey, but perhaps you have fallen by the wayside. God is calling you today to come back to this family. I know God's people here are good people. They'll pray with you and pray for you. They won't stand here with their arms crossed. They'll put their arms around you. They'll love you. They'll pray with you. They'll pray for you. They'll support you. That's what a family does. You need to make that request known right now as we stand.